<laughs> All right, we're rolling here. Hey, uh, good seeing everybody again. This is the last class before our big Christmas break. I think it's three weeks that we're off then for Christmas. Uh, this, next, this next Saturday, the Saturday after that, and then one more, I think. Uh, whatever, the, whatever the schedule says, that's accurate. Yeah, three weeks off, because I have to be gone in January. That, January 20th, okay, good, yeah. So have a nice, little, uh, a nice little break. Let's pray. Make us watchful and alert, O Lord our God, that when he comes, your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, will not find us sleeping in sin or distracted with fears, but awake, strong in faith, active in service, and rejoicing in your praises. Through the same Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. All right, cool. so, hey, all right, you're here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. There's room. Okay, she'll be here shortly, great. So, okay, just quick review from last time. What do you remember? We talk, we're still on baptism. What's the deal about baptism? Memphis. Yeah, born into a new life. Baptism is rebirth. Remember I talked about how uh, my mentor went to Turkey and Greece and in Turkey the baptismal fonts look like wombs because you, when you come up out of the font you're being born. Uh, so you're, you're dead, then you're made alive. Baptism does all of that. Uh, baptism puts Jesus close to you so you're never alone. Jesus always loves you. You're never unloved. Jesus doesn't hurt you so he's always there closer to you than your own skin. You get branded. Remember that, you get branded. The mark of God is on you, you're sealed. And the really big important thing there is two things. One, uh, the, the dedication of the temple. So how do you know that God lives in his temple? Because he puts his name on it. Wherever God's name is, there God is. The name is the fullness of God. And in baptism, the name is put on you and then you're sealed. And remember the idea of the city. So here's a city, we're gonna kick the enemy out of the city and then we're gonna build a wall to keep the city safe. So all of this is baptism. It means you belong to God, there's an ownership. You never belong to yourself, you always belong to somebody. Either you belong to the devil, in which case you're a slave, or you belong to God, in which case you're free. Being owned is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, the other thing is that baptism then also makes you a friend of God. Jesus, Jesus says that. You are, you are now my friends if you abide in me. Stay where I put you. You're born into this new life. Keep on this way. You're my friend. And that's really important. In fact, Carol and I were just talking about this this week. Because in the, in the ancient world, to be a friend meant more than just that, uh, that you're hanging out with people. Uh-oh. Can, can one of you little ones crawl down into the middle of the table and get that piece of paper for Mr. Bolton? Pardon me? Oh. Oh, I thought that was yours. 
Well, does it look important? If it doesn't, if it doesn't look important, we can just. If found, please call. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, you're the winner! <laughs> That's better than finding Jesus in the king cake. <laughs> okay, so you get to be a friend. That's more than, hey, we're buddies, we're pals. Hey, do you want to go hang out? You're my friend. So a friend in the ancient world is, uh, it, it, there's an attachment there. Uh, so the, the story that, that Carolyn and I were reminiscing about when we started talking about this was we went to Israel. When we, when we were in Israel, there was a guy, a pastor friend of mine who I went to the seminary with, and he was there too. So we hung out with him because we hadn't seen him uh, since the seminary. Really nice, nice young man. And uh, we went, we spent our free day, and uh, half of the free day we spent with him, and we went around and he wanted to buy an icon. And there's just, when you go to the heart of Jerusalem, there's, there's uh, little shops everywhere. And there are so many people, you have to walk like this to push by people. And so he, he, he wanted me to come with him because I know more about icons than he does. And he didn't want to get ripped off. So we were at some store, some shop, and this guy was trying to sell an icon and he was telling him all about it and then he told my friend, well, here's the price. And my friend asked me, is that a good price for this icon? And I said, if the icon is what he says it is, then this is a good price. And so he bought it. And after he bought it, the shop owner said to me, ah, you good sir. Here, take this. This is a gift for you. And he gave me a little icon. It's the icon I have. If you walk into my office, there's a book stand on the corner of my desk, and there's a little icon of the Holy Trinity. That's the one he just gave to me. And he said, you helped me. Now I will help you. And now, because we help, we are friends. You are my friend. And we, Carolyn and I talked about that, because what he wasn't saying was, now you're my pal. Here's my digits. Call me. What he's saying is now we're bound together, you and I, in a, in a mutual sense of hospitality and respect and love. That's what it means to be a friend, and that's what baptism does. You get to be a child of God, you get to be a brother of Jesus, but you also then are a friend of Jesus. You're bound to him in hospitality and love and mutual respect for one another. He's bound to offer you hospitality. You're bound to offer him hospitality. It's a really nice arrangement to be someone's friend in that, in that, uh, in that kind of an instance. So, uh, preemptively, preemptively, I'm gonna have you turn in your hymnal to page 325. And we're going to need our Bibles in just a second, too. So what is baptism? It is a, the touch of Jesus in water. Okay, That's, This is the first question. Not just plain water, but the water included in God's command and combined with God's word. 
Remember, we talked last time about what that command is and what that word is. Mary says, whatever he says to you, do it. So we do. And he says, baptize. That's a command. And why do we baptize and why do we teach? Because ultimately, what does Jesus want? Disciples. That's right. And remember, a disciple is somebody who follows Jesus and who sits at Jesus' feet and who thinks about different things than what everybody else thinks about. You think about Jesus' things. That's what St. Paul says, whatever is good and true and noble and just and pure and right, all of those kinds of things. Now you think about those things, because you're at the feet of Jesus. So, uh, that's, that's baptism. P water, and uh, that's combined with the command and the word. So what then do you need for baptism? What are the essentials? If we want to have to have, if we want a baptism, what do we need? Memphis? Oh, what a beautiful boy you are. Living water, he says. Living water, that's great. Remember, because the, the Didache says, hey, you really should baptize in living water. Some people think that they mean by living water that you should baptize in a stream that's running so it, you, know, you get the sense that there's life in the water. I can appreciate that, and I don't disagree, but I also think there's a deeper understanding to saying that there's living water because think about the pool that brings healing in the Bible. Why does the pool heal? Who stirs the water? The angel stirs the water and gives it life. Uh, and when you read the apocryphal books, you know that that's the archangel Raphael. Anyway, that's just a little fun fact for you. So the water is living water, not only because it's alive in and of itself, but because it brings life. So yeah, that was even more of an answer, Memphis, than I was expecting, because all I really was expecting was water. You went above and beyond. Yeah, so you need that. What else do you need? Word. The word. Yeah, and what's the word? Okay, yeah, that's the word. That's really important because it's not, we call it the baptismal formula, but it's sort of a bad way to talk about it because it makes it seem like it's magic. Like I'm going to take you to the water. Ooh, now look, nothing in my hands, nothing in my hands. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, presto, change, oh, now you're alive. Shimbari, shimbara. Okay, so here you are. Uh, but that's not exactly what what the word and what the name means. When we're speaking the divine name, when, the, when, when in, you know, you, you baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that's Jesus doing something because the name is the fullness of God. So you need water, you need word, and those are the two things we only talk about. But in fact, there is actually a third one. Can you think of what it, the third thing might be? Okay, well, now you're just being, now you're just being pedantic. Yeah, we don't, we don't baptize the dead like the, like the Mormons will do. The person to do the baptism, and what would we call the person that does the baptism? Apostle? Yeah, an apostle. Are you saying that because you thought of it, or do you remember it from last year? I remember. Okay, hey, well, good, good memory. I was going to applaud you either way. Water, word, and apostle. Okay, why do you need an apostle? Or why does Jesus, I mean, let me rephrase the question. Why does Jesus set up as the normal route that then you also have an apostle? Yes. 
you're on the right track. Baptism really isn't a work of the keys, per se. We'll talk about the keys later, but... Yes, he's the one that will disciple them in a way, but what does the apostle have? Say that you don't. Think about on Sunday morning, when you see me vested, underneath the big poncho called the chasuble, I'm wearing something else. The yoke, yeah, what do we call the yoke? Do you know? Stole. The stole. The stole is the mark of the yoke of the office. So anybody can wear the white alb and the little fancy rope belt called the cincture. Anybody can wear that. Anybody can wear a cassock, the long black one, and the surplice, the shorter white one on top. Anybody can wear that. Anybody can wear the dalmatic, which was what, that's what Pastor Kinney has worn for the Easter vigil. You don't have to be a pastor to wear any of those things. But you do to wear the stole. Because the stole is the mark of the office. And the office matters because the office is the power and authority of Jesus. And who does the baptism? Jesus does the baptism. Any pastor that does a baptism without being vested is creating a problem. Even in an emergency, the pastor should have, you know, some pastors will even do this. They'll, if they're called in for an emergency, they'll put on their full vestments and then hop in the car and drive. Others, more typically, they will, they'll carry a travel stole. So that's what I bring when I go to do communion visits. But then before you do anything, you put the stole on because that's the mark of the office. So then you're not confused because you know that it's not this guy, Joe Sixpack, who's splashing water on your kids. It's the Lord who's doing the work, and he's doing the work through his office. And you see that in the book of Acts. When they want to do baptisms, who does the baptism? Think of, let's say, the Ethiopian eunuch. We just did this in midweek. Who baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch? Philip. Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. The, the eunuch doesn't say, hey, hold up, there's a, there's a little puddle of water. I'm just going to go and get myself baptized really quick. It has to be done to you because it's a passive act. So you're the one who just lays there and, and it happens to you, okay? So you need water, you need word, you need Jesus. So when we say you need an apostle, what we're really saying is you need Jesus to be there to do the work. Now, sometimes we have emergencies. In the hymnal, actually, there is even, it says, in case of an emergency, here's a baptism that you can do. Now, if you do that, say you have trouble at the hospital, you give birth to a baby who is not going to live, and the pastor's an hour away and hits the road immediately, but he's not going to make it. And then you baptize the baby. What should the pastor and the church say about that baptism. That it's a baptism. Yeah. And in fact, in cases where something like that does happen, what the church will do is instead of, you know, we wouldn't rebaptize. 
at the beginning of the service when we would have the baptism, we'll actually do a little short service where we say a baptism did happen and the church says that it did happen and the church affirms that it is a baptism and so we'll write up a baptismal certificate and do all of that like we normally would under all ordinary circumstances, which is pretty fun. We, we affirm and ratify the baptism. This really happened. We're cool with it. All of you are cool with it too. Here's the certificate. Okay. So, these are the things that you need for baptism. What does baptism do? Well, let's, we've talked a little bit about it, but I want to talk about some very specific things here. Uh, so let's first start in 2 Kings. Do you need a Bible, B? I'll run and get you one. Okay. The beautiful thing of marriage, right? Okay. So think about that. You know the kinds of things that baptism will do. And then this catechism question here, how can water do such great things? How can water do such great things? Were you raising your hand? Sort of. Okay. I want to, if you were going to keep talking. Anyway, because of God's word. It's not just plain water, but it's... That's right. That's what the catechism says. How can water do these things? Well, because it's not just water. If it was just water, it would be just water, and then it wouldn't do anything. But it isn't just water. But let's, we're going to look at a, a few things here. I mean, think, of, think about the Old Testament while you're turning to 2 Kings 5, that so many things happen through water in the Old Testament. You want to know something that's really fun? At the very beginning when the earth is being created, the Spirit is hovering over what? The waters. The Spirit hovers over the waters. And how is the Garden of Eden described? Nobody ever thinks about this. Two rivers. Rivers. And Memphis already said it. What's the fun thing about a river? What kind of water is in a river? Living water. So the Garden of Eden, which is paradise, which is where all the fruits, including the fruit of life, lives, is fed by living water. Oh, isn't that cool? Now let's look at 2 Kings 5. You know this. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Isn't that great? Because by him the Lord gave victory. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. How would you describe a leper? When the Bible says somebody is a leper. Yes. Yes. How else? Those are both correct. There's spiritually a, unclean. Okay, spiritually unclean. What's going to happen to them? Die. They're going to die. And in fact, the problem with leprosy is you're a dead man walking. 
Your body is dying while you're up walking around. So you are dead. If you are a leper, you are just dead. That's one reason why you're cut off. That's one reason why you are unclean, because you are dead, and it's not good to touch the dead or to be around the dead. When we went to, this is another Israel story, we were someplace and there was the necropolis. Remember necros? That means dead. Puffy, poke it with a stick, dead. The necropolis is the city of the dead. And that just means that's the place where they put the dead people. So there were a bunch of tourists there and they were all taking pictures next to this big, beautiful building. And what they didn't know was if you could see the Greek carved into the wall, it said necropolis. And they're hey, we're in Israel. And we all kind of walked by and chuckled because they're standing next to the place of the dead and that's not the place you want to go to. You don't want to go there. You don't want to touch it. You don't want to take your picture there because that's all unclean. That's dead stuff. We don't touch dead stuff. That's gross. When there's a dead mouse in your house, you don't want to touch it. It's dead. It's icky. You don't touch the dead bird in your yard. You don't want to touch the dead... You know, you don't touch dead things. So you're a leper. You're dead. And you're a dead thing. We'll cut you out. We'll send you away. We don't want you. You're dead. Now think about that. You're dead. What does that sound like? Raccoon on the side of the road. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. I love it when the Bible says thus and thus. It's like the yada, yada, yada of the Bible. Or the blah. It's like the Bible version of blah, blah, blah. You don't need to know what he said. You already know that. Blah, 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 blah. He told his master. Then the king of Syria said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, <laughs> when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. I love this part. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard. What's the deal about Elisha? This is also very important to the story. What's the deal about Elisha? What's his story? Yes. He was the prophet after Elijah that got a double portion of Elijah's mantle. Yes. Mantle, spirit, it all works. What's a stole? It's the mantle. So, yeah, he is the prophet who is after Elijah, because what happens to Elijah? <coughs> swept up into heaven. And uh, Elisha receives a double portion of his spirit. Now, he has the same authority as Elijah, which is whose authority? God's, God's authority. Right, he's a pastor. Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. What does a prophet do? 
<laughs> he speaks the word of the Lord. <laughs> yes, he does prophesy. The question is, what does, pro- what does it mean to prophesy? And it's not like the oracle at Delphi. Do you know about the oracle at Delphi? This is, so this is ancient Greece. The biggest, the, the, the oracle was the woman who spoke for the gods. And she would go into her little chamber and she'd, she'd burn a little bush and she would drink a little potion and she'd commune with the spirits, if you get what I'm saying, and uh, then would come out and rant and rave and say, this is what the God says. Breathe in the fumes and then tell you, this is what the God said. And everybody lived by it. Oh, we got to go consult the oracle. The oracle will tell us. But she would always, the joke with the oracle is she would always say things ambiguously. They were, they were not so ambiguous that you couldn't come up with a meaning, but they were ambiguous enough that whatever happened, she could still say, oh, I was right. Okay. Someone, they say, who's, gonna, who's going to win the battle today? The host with the most powerful army will win the battle. Well, then you lost the battle and you have to say, well, I guess they were the host with the most powerful army. And she said, see, I told you. <laughs> okay, so that's not the kind of prophesying we're talking about. Biblical prophecy is speaking forth the word of the Lord. The Lord's word. Okay, so Naaman went with his horses and chariot. He stood at the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Naaman thinks too much of himself. Are not the Avana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the rivers of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Hey, what's the deal with the Jordan? Look at all this fun stuff that happens in the Jordan. But what's the deal with the Jordan? It's dirty and stinky. The Jordan's not a great river. So he says, go and wash in that river. And he says, you're off your rocker, man. You sent a servant to send me that message. You didn't give me the courtesy of telling me face to face like a man and you told me to jump in this dirty little poop pond? I'm not going to do that. There are better waters to wash in than that. So he turned and went away in a rage and his servants came near and spoke to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Dipped in the Jordan. What does that mean? It's not like he's, you know, boop, daintily putting his toe in. He's going in, he's going under. Just like just like an, an, an early baptism in the fonts where you'd walk into the font, go down, and then come back up. Seven times, that's always important. And, he, and look at this. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a child. You come out of baptism and you are a 
child. Hey, midweek, what's a catechumen? You should remember, Leela, because you're the one who asked me to stop saying it. Do you remember what it is? What's a catechumen? A faith baby. A faith baby. Yes, you're, you're my little faith babies. Look at you. <laughs> hey, my faith babies. And you're born in baptism, and you come out, and you're like little children, you're little babies. And then you come, and you're catechized, because we make disciples by baptizing and by teaching. And then confirmation happens, and that's when we say, Oh, they grow up so fast. Here are your big boy pants. No more diapers. And then you live the rest of your life growing up, going to school, and maturing and learning. <coughs> but that you come out like a little child. Even the adult that goes to baptism comes away from that like a little child. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, Oh, actually, we don't need to do that. He was clean. That's all we need to do. The rest of it's about payment. Okay, so Naaman goes into the water, and what, what does the water do? Cleanses. Cleanses him, yes. All right, now let's jump into the New Testament. Let's look at John. John chapter 9. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 9. Okay, John chapter 9. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What's the assumption with that question? Yes. That physical ailments is directly led to sin commission? Yes, that, that God will punish either you or your parents. If you were bad, he'll punish you. And if your parents were bad, he will also punish you to punish them. Oh yeah, that's how you're going to behave. Well, let's see how you like having a baby born blind. There you go. How's that? That'll teach him. Okay, that's the question. And there is some truth in there because physical ailments do have spiritual components, but what is the ultimate spiritual component? The thing that is the root cause. Original sin. Original sin, corrupted flesh, which is what kind of flesh would we say? Dead. Yeah, dead. Dead. Sorry, Memphis and Catechumenate, the nice guys finished last. <laughs> 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 That's right, you just got to shout it out. There's too many people for me to look around and look for raised hands. <laughs> you're, too you're too polite. Okay, uh, so Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. In other words, they're not, it's not that they're not sinners, but it's that he's not blind because he told a lie. Like, oh, tell a lie and God's going to st strike you blind. That's the kind of thing that a mother would say. My mother says it. Oh, 
may God strike you blind for lying. You know, something like that. Usually she says that. Actually, she didn't start saying that till we were all adults. And then it was usually when we were picking on her. So I don't know, maybe we do deserve it. <laughs> yeah, oh, kindergarten. Oh yeah, I've had these things. Yeah. <laughs> it was preemptive. The Lord just knew what was going to happen. See, that's what foreknowledge does. I know that when he turns 30, he's going to be a ripe ass to his parents. So I'm going to give him glasses in kindergarten. <laughs> I was so excited. I was the only one in kindergarten that got to have my eyes tested twice. All right. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. This is great. Why is he blind? So that God can show through his blindness how he works, because strength is manifest in weakness. Beautiful. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. What would we maybe call the saliva? We could get away with calling it what? Well, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, water, okay? I mean, we're, we're still on baptism here, so... You know, if, if, if I'm in a pinch, you know, and there's no water anywhere and somebody wants to be baptized, well, I'll, you know, there, if, you know, in a pinch that'll do. So there's some water. Okay, so water, and he mixes the water with the earth. What's the thing about earth? The dust of the ground? We are dust. You are dust. And he puts, he puts his living water his touch into the dust of the earth, he anoints the guy with it and he says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Yes. Did you have a question? Okay, just scratching your back, I guess, huh? <laughs> oh, I'm just teasing. So he, what happens here? The water does what? Heals. Heals, yeah. It specifically gives him sight. sight. It opens his eyes. So here's the deal, okay? These two things. Think about this now. We have Naaman. We have Bartimaeus, the blind beggar. What do the two have in common? How are they made well? Naaman is brought to life, and Bartimaeus has his eyes opened. Through what? Water. And the thing about the water is that it is the touch of Jesus. In Bartimaeus, you really see that it's some of the water of Jesus that he then touches his eyes and then says, go and watch. There's touch there. It's Jesus. So we say, in and with the water. And then we're going to turn to Titus Three. Actually, you don't even have to turn to it. You can, now you can look at your catechism that I had you open up earlier. Let's look at this. This is the third part here on 325. Should be close to the top on the right-hand column. 
How can water do such great things? Well, because it's not water. Certainly not just water. But the word of God in and with the water does these things. And the word is, remember, the word's not a thing. It's a who. Because the word is Jesus, along with the faith which trusts this word of God in the water. Now that's important, we're going to get to that in just a minute. For without God's word, the water is plain water and no baptism. But with the word of God, it is a baptism. That is a life-giving water, rich in grace, and a washing of the new birth. Look at this, washing, healing, in the Holy Spirit. This is Titus chapter 3. St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, He saved us through the washing of rebirth, you go into the water, you're washed, you come out like a little child, a faith baby. And renewal by the Holy Spirit. I am renewed, I am refreshed, I am given new sight. Whom he has poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Now we belong to him because we're branded. This is a trustworthy saying. Okay, do you see how all of this works? Jesus touches in the water. It saves, it heals, it opens your eyes. Uh, it's, it undoes, I said this before, but it undoes what happened in Eden. Because in Eden, people who saw became blind. They knew what was good, and then when they ate of the fruit that would give them knowledge of good and of evil, then they knew evil, and they forgot the good. They're blind to the good. And what baptism does is it opens your eyes, so you think you're walking on this path and that there's no other choice. And baptism says, oh no, look at all these other forks in the road. And then Jesus says, come this way, come this way, come this way, choose what is good. Don't touch the evil things, come do the good things. And your eyes are now open. You know what is good and what is evil, where you used to only know what was evil. And now, because you're baptized, you actually can be a disciple and strive to follow him as he leads you. And that means, this is very important, this is going to lead us, set us up for January 20th when we come back from break. You can choose not to sin. Yeah, but if you even thought about doing that, you've done it. About sinning? Yeah. Oh, sure. And that's the, that's the caveat. You can choose not to sin. You can work at being better than you are, all by the grace of God, but you cannot choose never to sin. You will always sin. But now your eyes are open. And there's a, there's a really great quote that I should include in Catechumen, and I haven't done it. And it's from the Chronicles of Narnia, and I was just reminded of it because I'm reading the, one of those to Saoirse right now, and I just hit the quote a couple nights ago, Monday night, I think. I don't want to spoil anything for you, but it's in the third book. It's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Never judge those by the numbers that are on the, on the spines. Those numbers are wrong. Those aren't Lewis's numbers. That's an editor's number. Those are wrong. The third book is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And Eustace, who's the kid that's brought to Narnia against his will, he's a real twerp. He gets turned into a dragon. 
And it's when he is a dragon and he all of a sudden realizes how bad he's been because he's turned into a dragon for thinking dragonish thoughts and having a dragon's heart. So he becomes a dragon. You are what you think. You are what you love. You, you are what you eat. We'll talk about all of that later on in this class. So he meets Aslan, the lion, who is Jesus. And Aslan cuts him open. He says, lie on your back. There's some water here. You need to go wash in the water and be made well. But you can't go into the water with your clothes on. You have to take him off. And he can't take the dragon skin off. So Aslan takes a claw and cuts him open and peels the dragon off of the little boy. And then the little boy goes into the water. And he comes out and he is so repentant. It's, it's like that Winnie the Pooh story when Rabbit hates Tigger so much because Tigger is such, an, such a, a, a bear bouncing around and being so hyperactive that he says, we're going to make an, we're going to go on an explore and we're going to try to lose Tigger. So we'll lead him around the forest and then we'll leave the forest and leave him there and he'll be lost. Why? So that he will turn into a sad Tigger, a humble Tigger, a lowly Tigger. And what happens is Rabbit gets lost instead and Tigger has to come in and rescue Rabbit and Rabbit becomes lowly and humble. Eustace becomes a humble boy, but the end of the chapter is so great because it says he was so much better than he had been before. But of course, every now and then he would drift back into his old ways because he was still quite new at this. That's what it's like being a Christian. You're a work in progress. So sure, you're going to drift back into the old ways a little bit, and we pray that that wouldn't happen, but it does. But we also pray that Christ would be there to help pick us up when we do stumble and put us back on the way and keep leading us, which he does. But that's the baptismal life. Now I can choose not to sin, but I cannot choose never to sin. All right? So uh, I'm going to pass out a handout. This is important. We'll go, uh, oh, that's not equal. We'll go both ways here. Okay, this is from 1 Peter 3. This is the really big important verse. 1 Peter 3. Um, I'm not going to try and read it from the diagram. Okay, so here's the verse. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now you look at the diagram. How, how many of you had to do this sentence diagramming in school? Okay, I had to do it. Oh my goodness. Oh, you do it too? All right, good. Yeah, well, you know, I'm with you, girl, because I didn't, I didn't ask to do it. My, my, uh, my teacher told me to do it. 
So let's look at this diagram. Baptism saves you. If you know anything about diagramming sentences, it's, it's, it's about breaking down the sentence into its little grammatical components so you can see what the main pieces of the sentence are. Subject and predicate and, and all of that. Baptism saves you. That is what it says. Baptism saves you. All this other stuff goes along with it, but the main thing is that it saves you. So don't try to be more religious than Jesus. That's always our problem. What's the difference between Jesus and everybody else? Jesus does what he's told. And we don't. We should try to now as Christians on this new way of life, but we have a little bit of trouble. So baptism saves you. How? Okay, it's the washing, it's the rebirth. It brings you into Christ. It brings you into the church. It's your hospital wristband. Now you're in. And you have all the rights and privileges there too. It makes disciples. Along with teaching. It raises the dead. That's why you say, I am baptized, not I was baptized, because your baptism doesn't stop working. It is always alive. That's why, again, this question about rebaptism, I don't even know what a rebaptism is. The church doesn't know what that is. There is no such thing as a rebaptism. The only thing the church knows is baptism. And then the church thinks it's strange that people would want to have baptism more than once because it's, it's alive and it's working and it's doing its job. Whether you realize it or not, it's just always doing that. It saves. It's working. Luther says, uh, you probably turned away from that already. I did. But uh, Luther says, um, what does this new birth indicate? What, is it, what does it mean that we're now reborn. Well, that the old Adam in us should, by daily contrition and repentance, be drowned and die. Remember, baptism is a violent thing. It's death. Death and resurrection, like everything in Scripture. Okay. Now, the other thing about baptism is that it creates faith. This is a really interesting thing, because you say, but don't I need faith to be able to have baptism? Well, yes. Baptism is received by faith. The Lutheran confessions say that uh, faith is the hand that holds. That is, I go like this. You're like Oliver Twist. Please, may I have some more? And faith is the hand that holds the gift. Well, what do we mean by faith? In one word, I'll tell you what faith is. And in one word, I'll tell you what faith does. Faith is love. Whatever you love is the thing you have faith in. So if you love Jesus, you have faith in Jesus. It all goes to love. You'll follow Jesus. Why? Because you have faith, which is to say, I love him. Why would I not follow the person I love? And what does it do? You've been in catechumenate before, some of you. You know the answer to this question. What does faith do? It agrees. Faith is love, and love agrees with Jesus. Remember that love and obedience are exactly the same thing. This is why St. Paul's 
uh, and St. Peter's writings about wives submitting to husbands is so widely misunderstood in the world because they think submission is a bad thing. They think obedience is a bad thing. And, you know, they'd be right if the Bible also told every husband to be a domineering jerk, screaming from his lounger in the other room with a cigarette in one hand and a can of beer in the other, make me a turkey sandwich. But that isn't what the Bible tells you to be as a husband, tells you to love your wife. Well, listen, it's really easy to follow somebody and to do what they ask you to do when you know that they're never going to hurt you, that they always have your best interest in heart, that at, at heart, the, that the only things that they will ever ask you to do are things that are going to be good for you. Well, then sure, yeah. It's like mom and dad saying, don't put your nose in a meat slicer. I mean, maybe you think that that's a real buzzkill. Mom and dad just want to squash out all my fun. And maybe it would be fun, but it also would be bad for you. And I only, you know, mom and dad only want what's good for you. Pastor only wants what's good for you. Jesus only wants what's good for you. Don't sin. That's bad for you. Come this way. And you say, well, yeah, you know what? I do love you, Jesus, so I agree. You're right. That is bad for me. I'll follow you. That's faith. So faith comes by, what does St. Paul say? Faith, yeah, faith comes by hearing. There's a really neat depiction of Mary, the, you know, the Virgin Mary. Uh, how does she conceive? By the word, yeah. How would, you how would you depict that? This is the fun part about medieval art. Our family Bible at, at home has some, it's full of medieval illuminations. And uh, last night when we were doing our devotions, we were reading Luke 2. We're going just a little bit through the Christmas narrative. And there's a big picture of the Annunciation right there. And it's there, Gabriel standing there, his, his wings are rainbow, and there are eyes all over his wings. Oh, it's great. Right, Memphis? Because angels are f more scary than you think. They don't look pretty and nice and white with blue eyes and blonde hair like they are in the paintings. <laughs> There's frightening, you know, big flaming chariot wheels full of wings with eyes that point in every direction. I'd be afraid too if that's what appeared to me and said, hello! <laughs> <laughs> okay, so she conceives by the word, but the way that that's depicted is that she stands like this and the angel is talking and it's like a comic book, the medieval, the medieval uh, artwork. When somebody talks, they don't do a speech bubble, they have the mouth open and then there's a scroll of parchment that comes out of their mouth like a big fruit roll up. And it has the words that they're saying on this little scroll. And in this depiction, Gabriel is there and the scroll is coming out of his mouth and it kind of goes, and then it goes right into Mary's ear. You will conceive and bear a son. How does she conceive? By the word, by hearing. Isn't that magnificent? So all of these early depictions of Mary's conception are her with the word coming into her ear. She conceives through the ear. So is it at that point, exact point that she conceived? 
Yeah. Well, it depends on who you ask. I say yes. That's sort of the the more traditional ways to say yeah. When the when the gate when the angel says you will conceive and the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, that's when the Holy Spirit does it by the word. By the word. So let's look at this faith. Remember, faith is love. It's not this whole none of this class is about this. I don't I don't care about this. Remember that. I don't care about what you think or what you know. I care about how you be. I want you to be something. I want you to live a certain way. That's what all of this is about. So faith is love. It, it loves Jesus, so it follows Jesus. Faith never talks about itself. So there, these are the four big things I want you to remember about faith. And it's on the handout, so you can't forget it. Okay. Faith is a passive thing. Faith is not your work. It's it's funny because Lutherans fall into a bit of a trap sometimes because they talk about faith like it's up here. I have faith. I believe. And it's up here. And then you say, I'm saved by faith and not by works. But if that's what you think of faith, then being saved by faith is being saved by works because you've transformed faith from something that is passive to something that is itself now the subject. My faith, what I've done, what I've believed, and that's not faith. So, faith receives. Faith is given. Why do we baptize an infant? Well, because we believe an infant has faith. Now, we, I would maybe talk about faith in two ways. You can say that there's maybe, you know, the kindling of faith, the spark of faith, or, to, you know, or, the, or primitive faith. So I hear, and the Holy Spirit starts to work in me and says, hey, there's water, there's Jesus. I've heard about Jesus, I love him, and I want to be his child. How do I do it? How do I, how do I get more faith? I want this, I want... I want to love Jesus. I want to be a part of him. And the Spirit says, over here, over here, over here. The Spirit always drives to Jesus. So the Word works, you know, even in the womb. I laugh about this because there are so many people that they won't baptize a baby. We'll talk about babies in just a, a second. But they won't baptize a baby, but they will put headphones on their stomachs and listen to baby Mozart to aid in the development of the child. So the Word, doesn't, the word of God doesn't work, but baby Mozart does. Something, something's off there. I mean, a baby knows the voice of their parents already in the womb. And you think they don't know their Lord? And you think they don't want their Lord? So faith is a passive thing. It's not our work. There's, there's Bible verses here. You can look at those. Faith agrees. We just talked about this. Faith submits to Jesus. Faith does what Mary does. Faith does what Mary does and does what Mary says. She's your mother, after all. You do what your mother tells you. What Mary says at the Annunciation is, well, amen, let it be unto me according to your word. That's what you want from me? Then you shall have it, whatever you want. I'll follow you, I'll do what you would ask. That's faith, that's what faith says. It agrees. And then it, it does, you know, whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever you'd like to be done to me, let it be done to me. And whatever you would have me do, let me do it. That's what faith does. Loves Jesus so it follows him. Submits to him. 
That means it just it lets Jesus have his way and not your way. So unbelief is saying no thank you to Jesus or trying to be the boss of Jesus. And that's, that's not the way that this game works. Faith is living. If your faith is alive, it can never stand still. It always has to be moving like a fidgety child. Faith always has to be moving. My cousin was a real spaz when he was little. He had to have the fidget rope, which was just like about an 18-inch rope that my uncle cut, and he tied a couple knots in it. And my cousin would then sit on the couch with the fidget rope and swing it around like that for 30 seconds. All right. You know, he'd go play a game. I got to go fidget. <laughs> and then go back and sit. All right, I'm ready to play again. That's the weird side of the family. <laughs> he's, a par he's a paramedic now. And he's married. Pardon me? Oh, he's outgrown the fidgeting. Oh, right. Yeah, he was really, he was really little. Say, so, but faith is living. It's, it's, it's got to be moving. Faith has got to be moving, and how that manifests itself. What does it look like that faith is moving? What does your life look like? How do we judge or measure faith? Through yeah, through works, or we can say by the fruits of faith, because. Uh, because when you have faith, it's living, it's moving, it's following Jesus, which means it does what Jesus does. Faith says what Jesus says, says amen to Jesus, then it says what he says and it does what he does. Why? Because we do what he tells us and we love him. We want to be like him. So we're walking the way to be more like Jesus, to get closer to Jesus. So everything that we think, everything that we say, everything that we do should be reflective of Jesus. And faith is communal. This is really, really important. You cannot have faith by yourself. The idea that I can be a Christian with just me and my Bible, it doesn't work. If you want to be alone, what you will find is that you will be devoured. You're away from the pack, away from the flock, away from the herd. And what happens to the ones that get separated and left behind? Well, there's one right there, they get left behind. And then what happens? They get eaten. What's Satan? A roaring lion. He's prowling. It doesn't say Satan is the lion that jumps into the pack to see who he can grab. Peter says Satan is a lion who prowls. Watch your nature documentaries. The lion stalks through the tall grass, just watching. And when they see one that is sick, or old, or weak, or young, that gets left behind and can't keep up, that's the one they go after. Separation from community is the devil's work. You're brought into the body of Christ, but not alone. So faith is a personal thing. Absolutely, it's a personal thing, deeply personal. I mean, when you come up to the altar, this is the, this is the best illustration of this. Faith is personal, but it is not private. It is communal. So when you come up to the altar for communion, what do you hear when the pastor stands in front of you? The body of Christ given for you. And I'm not talking to everybody all at once. I'm talking to you. The body of Christ for you. Here it is for you. 
But then I move on to the next person, and the next, and the next, and the next. And I say the same, th the same thing to all of them, too. So you're special, but you're not too special. You know, you're not the only one. We're all in this together, the body of Christ for you, and 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 for you, for, for us all. So it's a personal thing there, because it is for me, but it isn't a private thing, because we're all together. We are a body, and you can't be separated from the body. Uh, okay, so apart from community then, faith, uh, it sort of withers. It gets stagnant, it withers away, it weakens. How easy is it to skip church when you've missed two or three weeks? Well, after two or three weeks, it turns into eight years, and then the pastor's knocking at your door, and he says, well, it's only been a little bit. I still believe, though. And the pastor says, I don't, I don't know that you do. But you can learn to believe again if you come back to the body. Learn to love Jesus again. You can't say that you love Jesus, but then not go where Jesus is, not follow Jesus. I love you, Jesus, but you go on and, you know, leave me here for a little bit. No, 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 no. That's not the way this works. I'll marry you today if you'll come down to the church with me. Oh, I want to marry you, but give me another week or two. That isn't the way it works. It's now or never, friend. So you follow Jesus because you love him and he loves you and everything's going to be great and you are his friend, you're bound to him, you're in him, you're clean. He's going to lead you, he's going to teach you, you're going to be his disciple, he's going to help you to think about good things, better things. He's going to lead you away from evil, that's all the stuff that's bad for you, he's going to take you to the stuff that's good instead. Like a shepherd, leading his sheep to good pastures and good waters. That's why you can be content, because you know that no matter what, your, what turn your life is taking, you're never alone, Jesus is always with you, Jesus loves you, and... Jesus knows what's going to be good for you. Sometimes a little bit of sorrow is good for you. How do you know? Because you have it. Because Jesus put you where you are. How do I know it's good for me? Because I'm there. So, um, this is the last thing then. Who's baptism for? Well, all of this, baptism is for all who desire to be disciples of Jesus. These are really big. And... Uh, why I say this is because it applies especially to children. Why? Well, because they die. Because children are mortal too. And because they are born in, you know, conceived and born in trespasses and sins. St. Augustine has a really great quote of children. He says, this, Excuse me, he says, the strength of an infant is not in its body, but in its will. A little infant isn't going to bench his body weight. He can't throw you around. But he can bend you and break you. The day you bring that newborn baby home from the hospital, that baby already has you wrapped around its finger. It knows how to get you to do exactly what it wants you to do. Babies are very smart. They know. That's what Augustine is saying. Look, babies are strong, not in their bodies, but in their wills. They can will for things. They can work to make you subject to them. That little tiny baby 
Why? Because they're dead in trespasses and sins, just like you were. So they need to be made alive. So why would we not then take them to the place where they are alive? But here's the other reason. Because it's God who does the baptism, not Jesus. Or excuse me, not the child. God does the baptism, not the child. Jesus is baptizing the baby. Baptism isn't our own work. I don't do the baptism. The person being baptized isn't the one doing it. Jesus is doing it because faith is a passive thing. You're receiving what God is giving. God is working on you. So why would we not then bring the child to Jesus for Jesus to work on that child? Because it isn't about what the child is doing. It's about what will be done to the child. Um, God wants to give his gifts to everybody including and especially children. So we'll end here today just looking at some of these. Uh, if you want, I could give you so much more even than what's just on this handout. And I could go back even earlier than 180. So I have these all arranged in chronological order. Uh, Irenaeus is here. That's 180 AD. I mean, think about how early this is. So the, the New Testament is written, the, the Gospels are written probably, you know, somewhere between, uh, between 50 and 80, kind of on the late end, 50 and, and 80, already there. Then the Apostles die, turn of the century maybe, a little earlier. And then this is, this is you know, basically 80 years after the apostles. So all of these people can still say they knew the apostles. He came to save all persons by means of himself. That is about Jesus. All, I say, through him are born again to God. Infants, children, boys, youth, and old men. What age group is excluded from that list of people who baptism is for? <laughs> Nobody. You know, so this is written in Greek, and a Greek has very specific words for different age groups. So there's a word for an, a gestating infant in the womb. There's a word for an infant who is in the womb but who is ready to be born. There's a, a word for a newborn infant, a word for an infant of between one and three years, and a word for toddler, a word for young, like under 13, a word for teenager, all of these different words. And these are the big ones. All of these different ages, because it's for everybody. And this is a guy who studied under the apostles. So uh, this is just the, the first of these, but you can see already the church has always spoken about this, that baptism is for everybody because it's the, it's the means by which God saves you, by which he brings you into himself, gives you all of his gifts, this initial rebirth. It's for everybody. Baptize first the children. Now this is 2.15, shortly after here. Hippolytus, apostolic traditions. Look at this. What my teacher learned from his teacher who was one of the apostles and what the apostles said we should do. Apostolic traditions. Baptize first the children. And if they can speak for themselves, let them do so. Great. I baptized Annabelle. Jesus baptized Annabelle last year at the Easter Vigil. Could she speak for herself? She could, and guess what? She did. But otherwise, let their parents or other relatives speak for them. Because when you're speaking for the infant, 
Are you saying something that the infant isn't saying? No, you're saying exactly what the infant says. Why do we say that? Because the infant has already been receiving the word of God. The infant already knows Jesus and wants him, but doesn't know how to talk. So we talk, we talk for them. Now, this is the one, I'm going to jump all the way down to the bottom. This is the Canons of the Council of Carthage. This church council from 418. So this is before the Nicene Creed is even officially formulated yet. I thought that was like 325. 481, really. Okay. Yeah, but it starts at 325, 325, 41. It's, it's all in there. Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon. Those are the two big ones, yeah. So if you want to be a real actually kind of a guy, you can say, it's not the Nicene Creed, it's the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. And there are some guys that will do that, and then you can just make fun of them for being nerds. So, uh, this is 418. It has been decided, by the way, when it says that it's a canon of the council, what that means is basically, this is not the meeting minutes. You can read the meeting minutes from these church councils. In fact, they're fun to read. Here's what we talked about. The secretary report was this. <laughs> you, know, you, can read the, you can read these early church records of the councils. Well, you know, a little bit of a kerfuffle here because Arius showed up and, you know, Nicholas was here and, you know, they got into a row. Uh, <laughs> there was a council where a whole bunch of monks came and they all walked in with these big giant staffs because they were ready to start brawling. <laughs> so, you know, look at the church today and how, how much fighting there is. You say, oh, well, it's nothing new. The church has always fought like that, squabbled like brothers and sisters. Oh, he's touching me. I'm not. He's looking at me. That's how the church is. <laughs> Somebody once asked me what it's like to be a pastor, a, or a, a pre-sem guy. And this is... Don't take this the wrong way, okay, because I love you all. I said, being a pastor is sort of like you're the dad driving a big van full of kids and you're on a road trip from the day that you're ordained until the day that you leave. And every now and then, you have to yell, if you don't stop screwing around back there, I'm going to have to turn this thing around. You say, just sometimes, you know, you have to, and then sometimes you have to pull it over and pull a few pants down and give a few spankings. Then you get back and say, now we're going to keep going and this is the way we're going to go. We're going to Jesus. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't think, I don't think he got the joke. Because he kind of went white and he said, really? Is that what it is? I said, well, I mean, not really, but... Okay, so the canon, though, is not the meeting minutes. The canons are, these are the things that we are officially declaring. So that's, this is what the church says. This is how we talk. This is what we think. And we think that it has been decided that whoever says that infants fresh from their mother's wombs ought not to be baptized, let him be anathema. Do you know what anathema means? Accursed to hell. Well, yeah, accursed to hell. That's a strong way to say it. Basically what it means is not Christian. <laughs> you're not a part of the Christian church. You're anathema. You're cut off. You're not part of us. We baptize infants. We baptize babies. Even the one right out of the, uh, right out of the womb. Out of the womb into the water. Here you go. That's, that's what we do because we're the church. Why? Because 
That's Jesus who does the work, and the babies need that. They need life. They need to be reborn. We need to kick out the enemy. We need to build the walls around the city, and the Holy Spirit needs to come in. And all of this happens. Uh, so this is, you know, I'm not going to walk around and, you know, I'm not going to go down to River Hope or anything and say, all you sinners be damned. You know, I'm not, not going to do that. But this is to show you that this is the way the church has always spoken. I mean, right here, one, 180 all the way to 418, that's only, what, three centuries? So that's the first 300 years of the church, and we're already basically agreeing, yeah, babies need to be baptized. So who is baptism for? It's for everybody. Okay, questions about any of this? Did you have a question? No. no. It's, you can ask it. It's okay. Okay, wasn't there, I think it was Tertullian, was like, you should be baptized before you die so that all your sins throughout your life are... Yeah, there was... There was a little bit of a misunderstanding where they would say you should wait to be baptized until right before you die so that we make sure we wash away all of your sins. That's just a little bit of a misunderstanding about the relationship between baptism and the Eucharist. Right. I guess And absolution. Yeah. Right. I guess part of my point is that nothing with the early church is like a clear universal every church father agreed entirely. No, it's always a matter of majority. Right. It's always a matter of majority. And then the church upholds whatever the majority is mm -hmm. because the majority is always what is what ends up being right. Mm -hmm. Like this is why we do it. This is what we think. And there's always a minority. There's always the church isn't um, the church isn't united even now. It, most most things in the church even now are just are by majority. Mm -hmm. But it's a but there the majority is what is going to keep this. The church councils are church majority, but we say that's the voice of the church. Yes, Leela? Okay, so what if you're, like, if you're thinking of something, you don't do that. Does that still count as a sin? If you're thinking about doing a bad thing, yeah. and then you don't do it, but you still think about doing it. Yes, it does. Jesus that's says... What I was a while ago. Oh, I, I understood what you were meaning, yeah. That sin begins in the heart. But, but you, can, you can work to purify the heart, too. Again, you'll never not think bad thoughts, but if you give yourself good things to think about. So if you, if you walk around, this is what the monks do in, in Greece, some of the Greek Orthodox monks, is that they pray the Jesus prayer. They, they pray the Jesus prayer all throughout their day. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. They do that while they do their work. They do it while they eat. They do that all the time, so that their mind is always full of something that is holy to distract themselves from thinking of anything bad. So when you first start at the monastery, the abbot says to you, ah, okay, uh, so for, for this first week, I want you to try and make sure you say the prayer a thousand times a day. And then you get a little bit better, and he says, all right, now five. And then it's now 10, and he says, now shoot for 50. And then when you get into the habit of just praying constantly, then your mind doesn't wander as much because you are actually putting an effort to keep your mind focused on the holy things and not the unholy things. Think about such things, St. Paul. And, uh, and then, you know, you get to the point where you stop counting because it becomes part of your life. That's just one example. So you can work. That's one reason why St. Paul says, think about all of these things. Don't think about any of that. 
Now again, you can choose not to sin, but you cannot choose never to sin. You're still going to think about bad things. You're still going to walk down the street and you didn't even mean to, but you checked somebody out as they walked by. Or you did, I don't know, you did something. You, you had a thought, you were in church, you thought something about somebody, and, and you, know, you instantly regret it because you know what you just thought. But it still happens. But that's why we have absolution. So when you say we can choose not to sin, you mean to not physically carry out that action? I mean, you can choose, you can put in the effort, you can work toward not committing a sin and working to keep your heart and your mind pure from sin as well. So again, with the example of praying that prayer, if I go through my day just saying Bible verses in my head or singing hymns in my head or even singing hymns out loud softly to myself or praying, then my mind is occupied. I'm busy with something. And the, the busyness that I have occupied myself with there serves as a beneficial distraction to me to where I'm not thinking about the things that would have been sinful things. I'm thinking about this. But again, you're not ever going to be able to do that 100%. But it, but it doesn't mean that you don't try. And now that you're baptized, you have the, you have the ability to try. And Jesus says, hey, listen, you're, you're not going to do the best and again, this is all setting up for next time. You don't do the best, so I'll help to pick you up and dust you off. Uh, but don't just say, well, I'll never be able to do it, and then sit down in the dirt and pout. Like, pick, I'll pick you up, but then you gotta, you know, you're, you're living a new, you've been given a new life, now live that new life, and I'll help you, and I'll give you the strength to do it, but do it. So there's all kinds of things. That's why prayer and fasting and alms and tithe, all of this stuff that Christians do, all of that's called the spiritual disciplines because you're disciplining the mind and the heart and the flesh. You're working to curb all of that stuff to make it all better than what it is. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, does that answer your question? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, if I think to myself, man, uh, so-and-so, Emmett Windhurst's jalapenos this year were so much better than mine. I really wish I had the kind of peppers he had. If I think that in my head, I didn't go and, I, and steal his peppers, but I did covet them, and then I've already sinned. And, and because I coveted the peppers, the God, my God for that split second became my belly and Emmett Windhurst's peppers. And then I was not fearing and loving and trusting in God. So then I also made an idol, and I worshipped at the idol for one split second. See how that works? Yeah. So that's why you, when you start breaking it down like that, which we will do at uh, next class, uh, it becomes, you, you see how difficult it is. Living a Christian life is actually incredibly difficult. Anyone who says things are going to be easy when you become a Christian is trying to sell you something because when you become a Christian, life gets so much more difficult. It's harder to live your life when you actually know that there is a difference between right and wrong and when you know what is right and what is wrong. You could plead ignorance if you didn't know and say, oh, well, you know, I just didn't know and it seemed fine to me. But now you can't say that. You can't get away with it. Now you know and it makes everything harder. All right, let's pray. Let's open up the hymnals. 282. Holy God, holy and most gracious Father, have mercy and hear us. Our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Lord, keep this nation under your care. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Gracious Jesus, our Lord and our God, at this hour you bore our sins in your own body upon the tree, so that we, being dead to sin, might live unto righteousness. Have mercy upon us now and at the hour of our death, and grant to us, your servants, with all others who devoutly remember your blessed passion, a holy and peaceful life in this world, and through your grace, eternal glory in the life to come, where with the Father and the Holy Spirit you live and reign, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. <coughs> the Lord bless us, defend us from all evil, and bring us to everlasting life. Amen. All right. Enjoy the Christmas break. Come to church tomorrow for Advent, and then again for Christmas Eve, and church on Monday, too. So we'll see you.